0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll pick up in verse 47, we'll study through the end of chapter 14 and then we'll study also the whole of chapter 15. the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When Saul had taken the kingship of Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merav, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of his commander, or the commander of his army was Avner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Nair the father of Avner, and was the son of Aviel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people. And numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, "'Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel whenever they came up out of Egypt.' So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, And all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul and in the morning, and it was told to Samuel. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Saul came to Saul, Samuel. Came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord." And Samuel said, "What then is this bleating from the sheep?" And my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, They have brought them from the, Amal- the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? And do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned away. And when Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God. May the Lord give us understanding. May he give us submission to his word and help us to benefit from the revelation he's given to his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ancient history of your people, and Lord, how you have ordained and upheld it for all generations. Oh, Lord, that we would know your holiness. Oh, Lord, that we might be confronted for our own disobedience. Lord, help us to receive your word, to understand your word, to be confronted by it. We ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There may be very many reasons for disobedience. There could be a good reason for disobedience, and that is of conscience. If there is an earthly ruler that bids you or me to do a thing that is against the word of God, it is right for us to obey God rather than to obey men. But regarding disobedience, according to the word of God, usually, and almost every time, At the heart of that disobedience is pridefulness. It's when we, like Adam and like Saul, say to ourselves within our own minds and hearts, we know better than God. We'll do what we want rather than what he commands. Ultimately, it's about our plan rather than his. It's about our glory rather than his praise. And in the Bible, how does that end? Disaster. Always it ends in disaster. And this evening as we come to the passage of Scripture, what we see is the prideful disobedience of Saul against his God as he rejects his word and does whatever pleases himself. So the five things I want us to see from this passage of Scripture this evening are firstly in verses 47 through 52 of chapter 14, chapter 15, verse 1 and 12, I want us to see the hallmarks of pridefulness, the hallmarks of pridefulness. Verses 2 through 9, I want us to see the ignorance of disobedience, the ignorance of disobedience. Verses 10 through 21, I want us to see the pridefulness that rejects rebuke the pridefulness that rejects rebuke verses 22 through 30 i want us to see the pridefulness that prevents repentance the pridefulness that re- that prevents repentance and then in verses 32 through 34 i want us to see the triumph of divine justice the triumph of divine justice As we come to the close of chapter 14, we meet a scripture that is a condensed history. We've already had the foolish vow of Saul that was laid against the whole of the army of the Israelites. And it weakened them and it prevented them from conducting the successful warfare that they otherwise could have conducted. But in these verses, verses 47 through 52, what we have is a summary statement. We have the account of a large portion of time, and it's where the writer of 1 Samuel is giving us narrative perspective. He's sort of looking down from on high and giving us a larger story to bring us into the more specific and chronologically uh, unfolding chapter 15. We read in verse 47 that when Saul had taken kingship over Israel, that he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And that wherever he turned, he routed them. And that he did valiantly. And he even struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now that's a lot of history, isn't it? That's a lot of warfare. In fact, it's so much warfare that the Bible doesn't even chronicle it in every specific account. In fact, what we have, again, is this condensed history. And you might ask the question, why is that? Well, I want to suggest to you that these were, in essence, battles of conquest. This is warfare that Saul undertook, yes, probably out of a sense of needed defense against local enemies... But it also seems, as I think the text gives us clues to, that Saul does this for the establishment of himself as a king. And furthermore, for the establishment of Israel as a kingdom in the midst of kingdoms. I mean, look at it with me for just a second. What we have is the account that all the enemies on every side that surrounded the people of Israel, really it's all their neighbors, We read about Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, Zobah, the Philistines, and the Amalekites. There are here listed absolutely no uh, allies, just simply their neighbors. And Saul is being said to have waged war very successfully. He's done so, uh, well, with a great speed and probably great efficacy, not even having a single loss being listed. The scripture actually testifies to his deliverance of Israel and again to the success and the, uh, uh, the, the military prowess that he has attained. He asked the question, why is Saul doing this sort of thing? Well, it may be because where we left him in chapter 14 was in a disgraced and unauthoritative kingship, didn't we? What did we have as we studied last week? Well, right at the end, we have Saul... And in anger and a craze, threatening to kill his own son. His own son, Jonathan. The son that he loved. The son that had defended the people of Israel and who had had great success. Yet, who had broken his father's foolish vow. And do you remember what the people did? Oh, they revolted against him. You will not damage a single hair on his head by the Lord. We won't let you do it. And what is it? Well, there's the close there at the very end, verse 46. Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. He just gave up. And the Philistines went on their own way. He basically just said, All right, I'll do whatever you want. I'm afraid of you as the people of Israel. And so he leaves dejected. So when you come to verse 47, you've got Saul with a need to reestablish himself, to show his strength. To show himself as indeed an effective leader. A leader who can take care of any military business that should come their way. But we have a little bit of a tip to the pridefulness of Saul in verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And this gives you a little bit of a picture of the inner workings of the heart of Saul. He's a weak man. And so what does he do? Well, he finds strong men to hide behind. He's in essence taking these men, anybody who has success or authority or strength or power, and he is sharing the benefit of their own strength by association. That makes perfect sense if you've got an army and you're a king. You want the strongest, you want the best soldiers, you want the best men that you can have to possibly be the ones that would establish your army, lead your men in battle, and be great defenders. But really, in the way in which it's recorded here, in this verse, well, it makes Saul seem a little bit petty and shallow, that he's attaching men not just to his army, but to himself, to himself, he's looking for glory for shared glory. And this is the sort of thing he didn't do with Jonathan. In fact, we even see him doing this earlier in a different way with Jonathan. Instead of, well, praising Jonathan for the great victory, instead Saul went about and proclaimed his own victory over the Philistines and said that he would take the warfare to them. And so you see the hallmarks, these little pieces of a soul pained in pridefulness... Beginning to show a little bit more and a little bit more. But if you look ahead and you look at verses verse uh, 1 of chapter 15, I want you to see and to feel a tension here in the text. That Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Now you come to verse one and you think to yourself, Well, hang on a minute. Are we having Saul installed for a third time? Is this his third installation as king? Is he being reanointed once again as king over the people of Israel? I don't think that that's what's going on here. In fact, if you look back at verse 47, he's already taken the kingship. He's the king. That hasn't changed from verse 47 to 15.1. I also want to encourage you to understand that really what this is functioning as is it Samuel coming to Saul in deference of his being king but also saying this is the relationship I have to you he says the lord sent me to anoint you king over his people not to do it again but rather this is the reason the lord sent me to you this is our relationship saul i'm the guy that god sent to anoint you as king to begin with I am God's man that put you in this place, and I'm his hand for your care and your direction. It's an establishment of a relationship, but why would you need to do that? Well, if you're Samuel and you have a fear that the prideful heart of Saul will not even listen to you or receive you. Well, you go on and read a little bit more in that verse, and you get a better feeling of it once again. He not only says, I'm the one that the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. He then exhorts him, now, therefore, or on that ground, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. As if he expects that Saul will simply say, I'm the king and who are you? Why should I listen to you? Samuel has a sense of the character of Saul. You look ahead at verse 12, and I think you see again a tip of the condition of the heart of Saul. We're told that whenever Samuel rose early, after all the debacle has kind of come apart and Saul has disobeyed, that Saul in the morning was told that uh, Samuel was told that Saul had come to Carmel, to a mountain, and that behold, he had set up a monument for himself, and then turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now that might just sound like you know basic history and let's move on. And, but pastor, what are you really trying to make of this? Well Saul, after this success, the military success against the Amalekites. As he's got the spoil of the best of the beast of the Amalekites. And he's got the king of the Amalekites live and with him. He then goes to Carmel. This place where the Lord is worshipped. Where God displays his power. And what does he do there? Does he worship God on the very end of the battle? No, he doesn't, does he? He sets up a monument to whom? To himself. It's not to the army of the people of Israel. It's not to the kingdom of Israel. It's not to the God of Israel. Like you would only ever see anywhere in the Old Testament. Where God's people set up a monument. They do it to God. Now, he sets up first and foremost a monument to his own glory. It's about him. And after that's taken care of, then and only then does he go to the place of sacrifice at Gilgal. When his monument and his glory is established, then they go south, then they go back, then they worship God, then they deal with the spiritual things. Who is it that has first place in the heart of Saul? It's Saul. It's Saul. And the things he does and the manner in which he behaves shows the world the pridefulness of his heart. The pridefulness of his heart. As we go and we look at verses 1 through 9, I want us to see the ignorance of disobedience. This is when a lot of this starts to come into view. Verse 1, we have uh, the beginning, this establishment of the relationship between Samuel, the prophet of God, a priest... And also Saul, the king of the people of Israel. And it's in verse 2 that the commission of God comes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way whenever they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And that is a profound and terrible thing that we've just read, isn't it? It's a commission for absolute warfare, for the extinguishing of an entire people. It's not just go knock down their buildings. It's not just go and take all they have to eat. It's kill them all, everything, the whole of their civilization, And you come to the passage and you wonder, well, you know, this is a test, a third test, a trial for Saul. But does this have anything behind it or is this completely random? Because up until this point in the study of the book of 1 Samuel, we haven't heard anything about this. They haven't been engaged with the Amalekites, not at least until we read the brief mention of them there uh, in verse 48. But there is history here. There's the history of Exodus chapter 17, and the text itself even tells you what that history is. It's the account of whenever the Israelites were fleeing the Egyptians, that this group of people led by Amalek, the head of a household, they plundered, they attacked the last of the people of Israel who were struggling to keep up, sort of the weak sheep amongst the flock of God. They picked them off like wolves. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, it tells us that again. And we get that refreshed to us. And there we also have the curse of God proclaimed. And so what you're reading here in, in chapter 15, uh, verses 2 and 3, and uh, uh, yeah, 2 and 3, it's just a rehash of what God's already said. It's just a replay of how God has already cursed the people of the Amalekites in the kingdom of Amalek, that they'll be devoted to destruction. Uh, Now, one of the things you need to understand is that the language of the devotion to destruction, your translation may say a number of different things, uh, it could be translated to sanctify them to destruction, to set them apart unto destruction. But this is actually ceremonial language. There's a spiritual dimension, and this is the language of the justice of God. And so you should understand that this isn't just any old, uh, uh, I, I guess, angry thought of God being cast against these, these foreign people. No, that there, there's actually context, and this is the punishment of God for what these people, this people group, have done to the Israelites. So this is the enacting and the doing of the justice of God being called upon to be brought about by Saul. Verses 4 through 9. We read about Saul saying okay and taking up the task. Sons, sit down. Sit down. Taking up the task in verses 4 through 9. And we're told that Saul brought an army uh, together. And there's an interesting thing that we're told here that you might not understand in verse 4. It says he summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. Telaim, what is that? Well, that's actually a, a way of describing how sheep are counted or how a flock is described or, or set apart. And so this is this, um, this language uh, that I think is quite unique to the Israelites, this idea that even the army of the people of Israel are functionally led by God as a shepherd and the king is organizing them into strategic units as telaim. Or at least that's how some of the commentators uh, read this passage and understand this. But we read that he gathers 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. 210,000. That's an enormous army. It's wildly significant. And it really doesn't... I don't think, stretch the mind of credibility to think that if you've got that many people, when you go and wage war against anybody, unless they're a big people themselves with a great army, well, you're probably going to be victorious. Well, more so even if you've got God's commandment to go and wage total warfare. If God is for you, who can be against you? God wills it in this circumstance, deus full, And so there it is. He goes and he has the assurance, if you come against the Amalekites... You will succeed. And so he does. And he succeeds absolutely against the Amalekites. But I want you to notice one thing. And this is sort of a, this is where you know that there's a history here being recorded. Uh, I don't know that it plays too much of a role uh, in the whole of the text. But in verse uh, 6, we read that as Saul approaches the city of the Amalekites, that he says to this group of people, the Kenites, He tells them to go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. This group, the Kenites. And Bible readers, does that uh, set off bells in your ears? Well, it ought to. It ought to make you think of Moses and specifically Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. He was a Kenite. And so there's this relationship between the Kenites being... Kind and gracious, a different group of people to the Israelites, and so the Lord is repaying that kindness even that far back in this exchange between Saul and the Kenites. He's not being reckless, he's not rushed upon the city. No, he's up until this point following the direction of God with great care. Things didn't get out of control, Saul was in control, yet because of the state of Saul's heart, well. He did what he wanted to do and was disobedient to the God of heaven. We read in verse 7 that Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah. Do you recall what Havilah is? Where you see that in another place in the Bible? It's in Genesis chapter 2. Havilah is where? Well, it's the land over where the rivers are. So you've got basically from Babylon. We're told he defeats the Amalekites from over near Babylon in Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. So it spans the whole of the Near East, wherever the Amalekites are. He pursues them, he conquers them, he wages absolute warfare against them very successfully. He eradicates them. He fulfills that part of the commission. Well, we go on and we read in verse 8 that he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Why would you do this sort of thing? You've conquered a people and you've done it in such horrible style that you've made seemingly an enemy forever. Well, there's a possibility of one or two different um, ways to interpret this. Why does he spare Agag? Well, maybe so all of those neighbors who are looking on, those whom he's waged war against, They'll see Saul the Great, a king of might and mercy. Is he after his own glory? Well, that's a very strong possibility according to the character of Saul. Or is it that he's doing the thing that he's already done, attaching himself to strong and valiant men? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to say, here are my collection of kings that I've conquered, each and every one of them? Well, could be. Is it to keep him under your thumb, to make sure he doesn't do a thing and strike back at the people of Israel? Because the Amalekites do come back, and they do wage war against David at Ziklag. We'll study about that in uh, months to come. We don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. We do know that it's disobedience. We know that it's disobedience, that he actively ignores the direct command of God, even though he had the full power to uphold it and to fulfill it. You go on and you read in verse 9 that Saul and the people spared Agag and that the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Would not utterly destroy them. That's what they've been commanded to do. And all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Anything not worth having... That was the thing that they then devoted to the Lord in an execution of his justice. So you get a bit of the picture. You've got Samuel doing what Samuel wants to do. He's okay slaughtering men, women, and children, but ultimately he's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to keep the king, and he's going to keep the best of the spoils. Saul and the people, not just the people, Saul and the people are the ones that keep all of the best of the livestock. What's going on here? Why does he do this sort of thing? Well, it's because he ignores God. It's almost as if in his disobedience and his pridefulness, he believes that his God is blind and ignorant. He's forgotten the simple thing that we teach our kids in catechism. Does God know all things? Yes, God knows all things. Nothing can be hid from God. It's as simple as that. He's conducted the warfare under the command of God, and then he's done what he wanted to do, as if God would not take notice. Now, that, up until this point, it sounds terrible. He's done crazy and terrible things. He's killed an entire people group, and he's disobeyed God, and he's done it because ultimately he doesn't believe that his God is living or sees anything or has any power. But isn't that the same sort of thing that we do when we disobey God? In our hearts, we say, God won't notice this thing, this sin, that other thing that I do and I don't do when I disobey him. God won't pay any attention to the thing that I've just said, to the thing that I've just seen, to the thing that I've just done. I'll disobey him. I'll break all of his commands. After all, has God ever lifted a hand against me? Can he even do it? You see, we entertain very much the same thing every time we sin that was entertained in the heart of Saul. It's as if we believe that our God is blind and our God is powerless. Verses 10 through 21, we see the pridefulness that rejects a rebuke. In verse 10, we read God lamenting to Samuel about the state of things. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has, performed, has not performed my commandments. That's a really plain statement. It's as if in verse 10, God is saying very simply to Samuel, Yes, I saw that, and yes, I took note of it. I didn't ignore it. I didn't turn my back. I see that he's failed and that he's chosen not to do what I have told him to do. Now, we come to that passage and sometimes the theological question gets asked, how can an unchanging God regret or change his mind? Uh, We also have in this very passage of Scripture an address to that. So before we get too far, I want to put your attention to verse 29 and give a quick answer to a theological question. God... Regretting is addressed in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have a regret. So what's the Bible saying? Well, it's calling God the glory of Israel. And it is, in essence, telling us that the emotional life of God, as he communicates himself and his anger over Saul that he's speaking as a man to the ears of a man. You see there in verse 29, we're told very sincerely, he is not a man that he should have regret. There's a correction. There's a theological answer to the theological question. This is the way, with the words of men and the emotions of men, that God's heart is being committed and communicated uh, to the man Samuel. So that's, you can ask me a little bit more after the service if you are still really curious or confused about can God regret, can God change his mind. Uh, But that would be the way I would answer it at least uh, in this sermon. Um, But we go on and we have Samuel's experience of the thing that the Lord has said about his heart and, and how the Lord sees what Saul has done and his lack of obedience. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all the night. Who's he angry at? Is he angry at God? No, he's angry at at Saul. And the next day he rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it's told to him that Saul came to Carmel and set up his own monument. This, well, brazen act. This prideful act after which he then turned and went on to Gilgal. It's in verse 13 that we read about the encounter and the beginning of Uh, The rebuke, if I can find myself, yeah. In verse 13, we read that Samuel came to Saul and that Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, right from the very handshake, there's a deflection, as if he knows that it's coming. There's a lie right out of the bat, right at the very beginning Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments. And do you see in verse 14 the response of Samuel? It's the beginning of the rebuke, and it's really a sharp one. It's the kind of thing that a dad might say to a son. Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I mean, come on, Saul. I'm not deaf, I'm not dumb, I'm here. I can hear the animals. I know you didn't do what you said you'd do. It's kind of like sitting at the dinner table and I say to my sons, Hey, did you eat all of your dinner? Yes, Daddy. Yes, we did. And I say, I can see it on the floor, right? I can see the peas on the floor. There's something of that. It's almost silly whenever Saul is trying to conceal this waywardness that he's done. Verse 15, Saul getting caught in the lie and being rebuked. He responds, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Who's they? He's pointing at his army. He's pointing at his people and as a leader and as a king. He's saying, "It's not me, Samuel. Couldn't be me. My other brother tipped the plate onto the floor. It wasn't me. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Look at them. They're the ones. They are the ones, the people who have then been disobedient to to the Lord, the God of heaven. They spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the sacrifice to bring to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Verse 16, you've got Samuel doing what anybody should do in a rebuke whenever somebody's resisting it. It's almost as if he stomps his foot and he says, Stop. Just stop it. This is silly, Saul. This is just... Let let me just tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And there's the rebuke, the full body of it in verse 17, uh, going all the way down uh, to the response of Saul uh, that comes in verse 20. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Verse 17. Though you are little in your own eyes... Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? First part of the rebuke, you're the leader. Even though you don't want to accept responsibility, you're the leader. You're the king over Israel. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, he sent you on the mission, not these people, you. You're the king. It was your work. It was your commission. And it's what you were supposed to see to be done there's disobedience, the disobedience lies with you. The Lord said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. There again is the ground of the justice of God laid. You were told to do this because of what they have done in an offense to God. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? You didn't do it, Saul. You didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Go on and in that same verse, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You did this. It's not the people. You did it. Now something needs to be said here that whenever the word of God comes to God's people, those first person pronouns, you are important. It's important, important. You. There's power there. There's convicting power. And that's precisely the weight that's being thrown down at his feet. But there's pride there, isn't it? He can't get over it. First thing he's already done, it's the people. It's the people you gave me. We went on this mission. I took them. They took... The sheep, ultimately, God, it's the people you gave me. It's not just them, it's you, the ones that you gave me. They're the ones that did it. Blaming the people. Blaming the people. And then you've got the response of Saul, even to this clear thing, uh, brought against him, this rebuke. And you see in verse 20, he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. So he's still insistent. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Do you get what he's doing in verse 20? Have you picked up on the the twisting of words? Let me help you out here. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have done the mission on which he sent me. What is he interpreting the mission to be? To bring destruction on the Amalekites. The citizens, the people of the kingdom of Amalek. He's saying, I did that. This is the king. He's not one of the Amalekites. He's the king. He's, He's twisting the words. He's playing fast and loose and he's trying to find some kind of a loophole. To say, look, legally, according to the very word you gave me. I did exactly what you required of me. And it's really a slick, wicked, prideful heart as if the testimony of God against him can then be worked around and he can catch God in a loophole. And it's this pridefulness. It's again and again and again in this section of scripture He points towards God, he points towards the legalese of the commission of God, he points towards the people, and it's everybody else's fault except his fault. And his pride will not allow him to accept the rebuke that could have turned his heart back to God. You see, the way he responded is ultimately what decides what comes in verses 22 and 23, the response of God. Against him, as the Lord rejects him verses twenty two and twenty three has the Lord a great as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Do you think I would have been more pleased if you sacrificed these animals or if you had just obeyed me? That's the word he goes on he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. You don't listen to anybody, Saul. That's why you're disobedient. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He's saying your pridefulness, your disobedience, Saul, is just as offensive to God as the worship of false spirits divination it's just as offensive to god this presumption that god won't uh, raise a hand against you or that that he loves you so much that that you can do whatever you want it's just as offensive to him as iniquity and idolatry and then the very close of this he says this because you have rejected the word of the lord He has also rejected you from being king. That's at the very heart of it. The disobedience of Samuel's heart is an outright rejection of God himself. And it results in the Lord rejecting him from being king. That's pretty heavy. This is the second time that we've heard of him being rejected and the uh, proclamation that he will be removed from the kingship. We already saw that before. I think it's in chapter 13 where uh, he does the work of a priest, and so the Lord rejects him. But here it is again. But there is something I want you to see here. He's rejected as king, but he's not rejected as a man before God. And that's very important. Because as we go forward, what you're going to see is this exchange, this interaction, verse 24, between Saul and between Samuel. Saul says to Samuel at the end of this blazing rebuke from God, he then confesses, but it's an insincere confession. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There's a truth to that possibly he feared men rather than fearing the Lord but what is missing there well it's an owning of the guilt that he has in its full sense that he did not fear God it's as if he's saying I was afraid for my life and Lord I did sin against you I really did but it's I had a good reason I sinned against you I disobeyed you because I was afraid of the armies of Israel. That if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, what would have happened? What would have happened? There's a half-hearted confession. You go on and in verse 35 or 25, he requests to Samuel, Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Look, I confess, let's get it over with. Now pardon my sin, that's what he tells him. Come on, priest, make the sign of the cross. Put some holy water, holy oil on me. Whatever it needs to happen, let's get back to business. Pardon my sin that I may return with you and worship the Lord. See, it's it's the pridefulness. He can't see through it. And he can't repent, not with any genuineness, not with any sincerity. Samuel responds in verse 26 and says to Saul... I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then, as Samuel turns to go away, Saul seizes the skirt of his robe and tore it. It gives you a sense of the extreme interaction, uh, the the emotions. Now, some commentators say that this is kind of a a grab towards Samuel and violence. I don't know that that's the case. It seems. Like desperation uh, to me, at least as I read the text. But nonetheless, as Samuel turns to him, seeing his his gown ripped, well he prophesies against him once more. He says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Isn't that very specific? Isn't that very direct? You go on and you have Saul continue. I know this is one of the longest points of a sermon ever, but verse 30, you have Saul once again give a half-hearted confession. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Here it is again. But do you get it? What's going on? He's saying, yeah, look, I'm guilty. Yeah, all right, I'll say what you want me to say. But why don't you go and help me reestablish myself before the elders of Israel? He's already looking to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I know I sinned. Yeah, I know I offended God. Is that that big of a deal? Really? Now, can't we just go and get it all set back up and situated once again? Can't we be where I can lead the people again and be the king anyway? even if God is rejecting me as king see it's really shallow it's pretty sad in verse 31 we have the response of Samuel and it's only in part so Samuel turned back after Saul and bowed before the Lord but do you notice what he doesn't do He's willing to bow with him. He's willing to pray with him and pray for him and pray for the Lord to forgive him and to give him true repentance. But what does he not do? He doesn't go along with it. He doesn't go to the elders. He doesn't play this whole role play that he wants. Let me look good before the people. I'm not going to do that. I'll pray with you. I love you. I'm your pastor. I want the Lord to forgive you. I want you to repent, but I'm not going to go and play like nothing happened. And so he does pray with him, And that's the last that we hear of Saul in this passage of Scripture. And it's pretty hard. There's a ripping of the relationship between God and Saul. There's a rel- ripping of the relationship between Samuel and Saul as well. And it's all because of a pridefulness that stands like a great wall between his heart and turning from his sin before the God of heaven. there in verse 32 and 35 where we have the victory of divine justice. The victory of divine justice. Verse 32, as Saul is functionally removed from office as the king of Israel, Samuel takes it into his own hands and the Lord's will will be done. His justice will be served. Uh, This um, punishment will be brought against uh, all of the house of the Amalekites. And so Samuel uh, says to them, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And we're told with historical clarity that Agag came to him cheerfully. And he was saying in himself, surely the bitterness of death is past. And it's the response of Samuel that gives you a sense of the justice that's being done here and how he regards this, how Samuel thinks of this as being a thing before God and actually Him wielding the sword, the sword of justice, because God is holy. So look what he says. Samuel says to Agag, he says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And then we're told that Samuel put Agag to death in a gruesome manner. He finishes it. He does what Saul should have done in his place, And it's as if Samuel has once again taken up the work of a judge even for a moment so that the honor of God and the justice of God might simply be done and that the word of God might not be a lie and that the Lord might not have any regret but that the will of God would simply be done. What's the big point here? Well, it's to simply look into the face of this, that our God is not blind. Our God does not say one thing and then do another. If God commits his just hand against something, it will be carried out against our sins and the promise of the eternal punishment that we would have in the pit of hell and the torment that comes with that, or the justice against our sins would be carried out if we believe in Christ in his flesh as he hung upon the tree in agony. One way or another, the justice of God comes and is done. It always has the victory. Because if the Lord doesn't fulfill his justice, he is ultimately an unjust God and ought not to be worshipped. But here in this passage, justice is done. It's fully carried out. The whole of the sentence is completed, and it is not commuted or removed. Verses 34 and 35, at the close, we read that Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gibeah, And that Samuel did not see Saul again till the day of his death, but that Samuel grieved over Saul. And that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. It's a messy thing. And something to be said here is that while we're in the church and while we're ministering one to another and while we see the things that happen because of sin and the disobedience of the heart of other people, Sometimes we really struggle. We see a brother go into this or that kind of sin, a sister go into this or that kind of sin and leave us, and we find ourselves just standing here holding a bag and wondering what's going on. How do we even feel about this? Well, I think the Bible at least gives us room to buy hope in the Lord and a real sense of the rightness of God and the righteousness of his his holy will to simply grieve, to simply grieve over the rejection of God and the disobedience of his people. It's okay to grieve these sorts of things, is what I'm saying to you, friends. And this is the word of God. First Samuel chapter 15. May the Lord help us to understand it and to bear it up in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, even the ancient accounts of the waywardness and the pridefulness of the hearts of great men. Lord, we pray that you would correct us, that we would look at Saul like an older brother that did a wrong thing, that we would learn from his example, that we would turn from our own pridefulness, that, Lord, we would be obedient. Oh, Father, that we would be sensitive, that you are a God who sees all things and knows all things. Oh, Lord, that you are a God who in every way brings the fullness of his justice about. Oh, Father, even if it is by the working of grace your justice is had, Oh, Father, we pray all of these things. and We pray that you would help us to have received them. Oh, Lord, in Christ Jesus, we pray it in his name. Amen.